Join me now in Nehemiah 5, if you would. We get this morning to look together at Nehemiah on a more personal level. We've seen him as the leader, and certainly there'll be an expressions of him as a leader, but we get to see some very personal practices, decisions that Nehemiah made as a leader. He is the governor of Jerusalem. Maybe you didn't know that. But when the king sent him back, he sent him back to be the governor. And so as the governor, he has wealth and authority. And how a person uses their wealth and how a person uses the authority, whatever amount it is, all those listening right now, there's varied degrees of wealth and authority represented. How you use the wealth that God has chosen to give you, how you use the authority that God has chosen to give you will reveal significantly who you are as an individual. And it will impact significantly not only uh, the degree of influence you have in this world, but it will impact your eternity. So we're going to look at his personal practices of using his wealth and his authority and then go a step deeper and say, what drove those decisions? Because all the decisions that you and I make are rooted in some core principles that we live by. And I, I remember early on realizing I will not understand another person's decisions until I understand their values. And, and so some decisions like drive me crazy. And then I was like, oh, no, no, no. It makes sense according to their values, their principles. So we're going to see the decisions but more importantly, look at the values, the principles that drove those decisions, and then ask ourselves, what's driving the decisions we make regarding how we use our wealth, how we use our authority? So a simple run through the text, first looking at the things that he did and the things he didn't do as the governor, all right? Join me in Nehemiah chapter 5. We're going to run through verses 14 through 19 together. He says, beginning in verse 14, Moreover, from the day that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, for 12 years. So this is not a one-time decision. This is a pattern for 12 years that has ruled his life. For 12 years, neither I nor my kinsmen have eaten the governor's food allowance. But the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine besides 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants domineered the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also applied myself to the work on this wall. We did not buy any land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 Jews and officials besides those who come to us from the nations that were around us. Now that which was prepared for each day, so this is the daily diet, was one ox, six choice sheep, 
Birds were also prepared for me, and once in 10 days, all sorts of wine were furnished in abundance. Yet for all of this, I did not demand the governor's food allowance because the servitude was heavy on this people. And he finishes with this. Remember me, oh my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. Now you may think, we're going to spend a morning on that? Like what he ate? What he didn't, didn't do? Yeah, this is, I think, profoundly insightful into this man, his practices, and then the principles, the values that undergirded them. So we're going to look at two things he didn't do and then two things he did do. First, when we look at his personal practices, he didn't do what had always been done. He did not follow the norm. What had always been done, he said, I'm not going to do that. Even though I could, I'm not going to. He didn't do what had always been done. Specifically, what I'm referencing, of course, is verse 15 when it said, But the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine besides 40 shekels. The former ones did. I, he says, I didn't do that. Now we'll talk about... Why, in a moment, but that was a decision. I'm not going to do what every governor did before me. Second, he says, I didn't exercise all his, right, his rights and privileges. There would have been privileges for a governor. At the core of that was what he references multiple times here is a governor's allowance. He didn't exercise the right and privilege of the governor's allowance. For 12 years, neither I nor my kinsmen have eaten the governor's food allowance. Yet for all this, verse 18, I did not demand the governor's food allowance. So he had a a right and a privilege as it came to an allowance, and he rejected it. Maybe you would think about in your environment, if you have a business expense, it's your right, your privilege. You go, no, I'm not going to take it. You'd think, no, I wouldn't do that. I'd take it. <laughs> Nehemiah says, I'm not going to take it. I could, but just because I can doesn't mean I should. So he rejects, even though it's, nobody would have blamed him for doing so. Everybody did. He, he rejects that. He, he rejects the opportunity to buy land. He rejects, actually, the opportunity to direct the work but not participate in the work. He not only participates in the work, he has his servants who mostly would have intended to serve him. He has them at the work on the wall. You see? There's decisions I'm not going to take the allowance. I'm not going to use my servants just for me. I'm going to work and they're going to work. He exercises, he says, I'm not going to exercise a number of my privileges. And yet, what he does do was feed his people better than most. Now, maybe you didn't think much of this, but as a meat eater, 
and uh, a meat eater lover, uh, I was like, what's this actually work out to when he is having an oxen and six sheep plus birds a day? Not much. You think that's a little or a lot? If you have 150 people in your household, give or take an undisclosed number of guests from other nations. It doesn't give a number there. Well, I was curious, so I Googled. What's the uh, normal weight of an ox once you have slaughtered it and prepared it for food? How much meat am I going to get from a normal ox? 450 pounds. That's pretty good. All right? Sheep, how many am I going to get from sheep? Well, from about six sheep, I'm going to get 210 pounds of lamb. That's a serious amount of lamb. So, over 12 years, he consumed 4,380 oxen, 26,280 sheep. Oh, not just, not just Nehemiah. Yeah, that would have made him extra large. No, that was Nehemiah. That's what he fed folks for 12 years. Now, maybe you go, oh, yeah, that's pretty generous. That's super generous as it relates to the world. I, I recognize that, that I kind of live in this mindset that if we didn't have meat, we didn't have a meal. If Jackie tries to feed me some meal and there's not a meat involved, there's, that's not a meal. We have meat. I don't, I don't really care about the rest of the sides. We have meat. And Nehemiah didn't really care. Notice he didn't say how much corn, potatoes, any of that stuff. He just defined there's how much meat we had. Because meat... The, You understand why? Because meat would have reflected something that the normal person wouldn't have experienced. So you see kind of this unique side of Nehemiah saying, I'm not taking the food allowance. You go, wow, you're being super frugal. But then we're talking over 400 pounds of meat a day for your guests and your family and for your kinsmen. It was like, wow, pretty generous. Does that seem weird to you? I was curious. This decision, I was like, that's unique. And then this decision, they don't always seem to add up. It also says, um, well, there it is, one ox, six sheep, birds. I didn't figure the birds because that'd be the third thing that I would take. So I didn't really care about the birds. Uh, <clears throat> personal practice of Nehemiah's governor is then he did enjoy an abundance periodically. And of course, what am I referencing? Yeah, that it was interesting. He didn't like say, and we had a little wine every day, he said, and once in 10 days, all sorts of wine were furnished in abundance. So never in 12 years took the food allowance Never in 12 years bought land or took advantage to just make other people work while he watched. 12 years uh, allowed his servants to be at work 
and but then fed them really once, really well, and every 10 days, they broke out the wine. And it wasn't just a little bit. They served in an abundance. He's a bit of an enigma because either, or maybe this is just my world, either you're frugal or you're extravagant. But rarely do you find the same person making frugal decisions at times and then extravagant decisions at other times. So now maybe that gives you a little bit of a window of, okay, why was I so intrigued about this text? Why, why such a pretty extreme difference in decisions? It's because of what? What do we make our decisions out of? What we value, the, the principles that drive our life. So let's go back and look at the text again, not by the practices, but say, what is it? Because he gives us a window in. What is it that drove those decisions? First, you probably noticed, it said in verse 15, the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people. He didn't want to. I did not man the, demand the governor's food allowance because the servitude was heavy on the people. What's he saying? He's saying the decision I made regarding the food allowance was because if I did what had always been done and if I did what my rights allowed me to do, it would be at great expense to the people. And so why is he not doing the food allowance? Very simple. It's rooted in a, a love for people. He did not want to put a pile of heaviness of weight upon them. He, he didn't, he, he wasn't willing to say, I'm going to take what I can if it's going to become a hardship for you. It was a love for people. But if he wasn't going to do that, why did he feed his guests so well? I think it's the same reason. Love for people. See, don't miss this. Love for people means that I don't always do exactly the same thing for everyone. Now, that might sound like heresy right there. What? You do different things for different people? Yes. I would do different things for different people at different times. What would be the question? What would be loving them? To my guests, to practice hospitality? This is what my budget tells me. <laughs> my budget tells me when we practice hospitality, we spend a lot of money on groceries. If you practice hospitality, you spend a lot of money on groceries. 
When we have people in our home, I see stuff show up in our refrigerator that doesn't show up otherwise. And I'm like, hey, what do we, wow. Really? And, and you know, you know, this will go, wow, you're really a pastor? Because there's times in my mind that I think, we should have that, not them. <laughs> but we, we do stuff for other folks that we don't normally do for ourselves. Nehemiah loved the poor by not taking an allowance that was rightfully his. He said, I'm not going to take it. And he loved strangers and guests and those in his household by blessing them with extravagance. Love for people. The way the New Testament states it is this. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. That's just a, I don't want to owe anything to anyone except I owe them because of who I am and what God has done for me in Christ Jesus. I owe them to love them as I have been loved. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. See, watch this. You shall not commit adultery. Why? Why? Because that's because that's unloving to commit adultery. So don't commit adultery because that to not do it is loving. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. You, see, you get, maybe you've never really considered the simplicity of every, com watch, every command of God is rooted in answering this question. What's loving? What's loving to my spouse? What's loving to my neighbor? What's loving to my coworker? What's loving to my boss? What's loving to my employees? What's loving to my friends? What's loving to strangers that God crosses my path with? The whole law, if there is any other commandment, and there's more than that, right? Y'all know that. There's lots more than that. If there's any other commandment, it is summed up in the saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Every command simply has at the core. What's loving? He concludes in Romans 13, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Does no wrong. I'm not going to put a burden on the poor because putting a burden on them would be unloving to them. I'm not going to go cheap on my guest and save the best for me because that would be unloving to them. I might help someone because that would be loving to them. I may not help someone because that would be loving to them. Is it possible that you wouldn't do something for someone out of love? Yeah, 
Probably all of us know folks like that. And that, quite frankly, the most unloving thing we can do is continue to give them. That's hard. And sometimes we do it not because we love them, but because we love us. It's just easier. Because <laughs> it's hard. But do you get what I'm saying? Sometimes we lovingly speak up, and sometimes we lovingly shut up. The, the core command, the value that drove Nehemiah, that challenges me, really every day to go today, what's loving? What's loving to my wife today? What's loving to my kids right now? What's loving to my grandkids right now? What's loving for CFC? Well, what's loving to the person that I meet in the courtyard? What's loving to our brand new neighbors who moved in beside us? Always asking the simple question. Not I do the same for everybody all the time, but what is loving? Love for people is the value that drove the decisions that Nehemiah made for 12 straight years. But it wasn't just love for people. But the former governors, verse 15, who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine besides 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants domineered the people. But I did not do so because of... Yeah. What's it? Maybe you want to underline it in your Bible. What's it say? Because of... Because of the fear of God, the fear of the Lord. Because of the fear of God. See, this is, this is the second time now in chapter 5 that Nehemiah says the fear of the Lord ought to determine what we do with particular people, the poor. If you weren't here last week, or if you were, let me remind you. A fear of God, that's a love for people, a fear of God. Let me remind you. The thing which you are doing, remember, they were lending to the poor, but going and adding interest to it so that they weren't helping the people. They were putting the people even more under a pile. The interest was just piling up upon them. They weren't helping, they were hurting. And he says, the thing you're doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God. And then he turns around and he says, and I love this about Nehemiah, he says, what I told you is what drives me. I don't do, uh, not even taking interest, uh, I lend without interest, and I don't even take my right because of a fear of the Lord. So I went by it quickly. I think you probably wrote it down. It was a love for people and a fear of God. And, and I didn't go into the study of this book expecting for this emphasis to strike me. But here's what I'm inviting all of us into together. To ask ourselves. 
Does the fear of God have a place in my life? Because it's, it's kind of out of sorts. Fear of God is, is not something we talk much. That's me, pointing at me. It's not something I talk much about with us, a fear of the Lord. Talk about the love of God, the power of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God, the help of God. But I have some ownership here that for the people and for the leader in Nehemiah, there was a fear of the Lord that was a driving value in his life. And this, this study has caused me to ask myself, do I ever make a decision based on the fear of the Lord? And it's been a good process for me. This past week, there's been a, couple, a, a number of times where literally I have said to myself, a yes and a no, or a no, different situation, based on because of the fear of the Lord. So maybe that's new thoughts for you. Maybe you want to start reading in your Bible about the fear of the Lord. We're going to come up on it next chapter again, and we'll unpack even more. The fear of the Lord. But it was a, it was a value that determined the words that Nehemiah said to the people last week, and it was a value that determined a decision, a pretty major financial decision that he made in his life. He, he forfeited significant financial opportunity out of the fear of the Lord. The comment that here's the only one more thing I'm going to say about the fear of the Lord. There is last week and this week, a direct connection between the fear of the Lord and uh, treatment of the poor. So I think it's bigger than that. We'll unpack that coming weeks. But it, at minimum, my, our interaction with the poor ought to have a connection to the fear of the Lord in our life. In our Bibles, Proverbs comes after Nehemiah. But actually, historically, Proverbs were written hundreds of years before Nehemiah lived. And so I want to take us to Proverbs 22, a passage that I think was deep in Nehemiah's mind that caused him to make this decision. Proverbs 22 says this, the rich and the poor have a common bond. The Lord is the maker of them all. So if you're poor, the Lord has made you. If you're rich, the Lord has made you. The Lord can make you rich and the Lord can make you poor. And the Lord can make the poor rich, and the Lord can make the rich poor. Right? What's his point? It's easy to be conceited and arrogant and proud for the rich. 
the Lord, the Lord has made them both. He goes on and says, he who oppresses the poor to make more for himself or who gives to the rich will only come to poverty. The Lord makes the rich and the poor and those who oppress the poor will come to poverty. Do not rob the poor because he is poor or crush the afflicted at the gate for the Lord will plead whose case? Who's there? The poor's case and take the life of those who rob them. Now, maybe you go, ah. See, when I look at Nehemiah, I look at a man who I think has taken Proverbs 22 and the truth of the rich and the poor and God's commitment to plead the case of the poor and God being against those who oppress the poor. I think those were were truths, Proverbs, that found their home in the heart of Nehemiah so that when it came to an opportunity, even if he wasn't trying to take advantage of the poor, he was just taking advantage of his position. He was just being the governor. He said, no, 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 no. I know what Proverbs 22 says, and I will not be that guy. So there's more to the fear of the Lord than how we deal with the poor. But how we deal with the poor is rooted in a fear of the Lord, an understanding of who he is for the poor and who he is to those who oppress the poor. So... When we think about this rubble, are the poor represented in who we care for? Are the poor represented in who we are seeking to not increase their burden but lighten their load? Are we CFC? And just think, not just big church, just individuals. We are we joining the Lord in pleading the case for the poor. My friend Shirley made a, a observation today. I think this is true for us. We've gotten used to the rubble. Kind of now, if you're new, you're like. No, I haven't got used to it. I've been thinking, why do you have a bunch of pile of broken brick, bricks in front of you? Yeah, she said, most people put flowers. We have rubble. <laughs> and we had a funeral in here this week, and the rubble was right here. But you get my point. You know what I'm saying when I say we get used to the rubble, right? If we can get used to a pile of rocks, broken rocks, and we don't see them anymore as we worship, as we study together, it's a reminder of how easy it is to get used to the abused, to the lonely, to the lost, to the poor, to the broken, to the addicted. 
We just get used to it. Unless, what? Unless I go, no, that which drives my life is a love for people and a fear of the Lord. See, I appreciate that at this point we get, that, we get this 12 years, Nehemiah, 12 years. Not a, not a uh, sprint. That's a marathon there. That's not an uh, emotional high for a week or for a month. 12 years, love for people, fear of the Lord dictated the decisions he made for the broken and the burned. See what I'm saying? And so let's ask ourselves again, Lord, don't let me get used to this. Don't let my heart grow callous. And maybe that's even too strong. Just blind to it. Let my my love that you've placed in my heart And that love for people that's rooted in a fear of the Lord, let that continue to cause me to be attentive and helpful to the broken and the burned in our world. He finishes with this. Remember me, O my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. What's he want the Lord to do? Remember, remember, remember what I'm doing, Lord. What's he getting at? If if I say remember, I'm talking about the future, right? Remember in the future, Lord, the good that I've done for these people. I think Nehemiah is reflecting that he made decisions based on, first, what was it? Love for people. Second, fear of God. And third, I think reflected here is he made decisions based on an anticipation of a greater eternal reward. Remember me, oh my God, for the good that I've done for these people. Remember me. Somebody asked me Thursday night, is it legitimate to live for eternal reward? Isn't that selfish? Russell, is it legitimate to live for like eternal reward? (laughs) Before we look specifically at how we do it, let me describe what we'll do with our reward. It says in Scripture that we'll be rewarded according to what we've done with crowns. And you know what we'll do with those crowns? <laughs> we'll lay them at the feet of Jesus. Why? I think we'll do that because it's his work and he's the one who did the work, so he's the one deserving of the glory. So is it selfish at all? Like, it's selfish if worship is selfish. But worship isn't selfish. Worship is not self-oriented. It is God-oriented. So living for an eternal reward is not selfish. 
Living for an eternal reward is driven by a life that is Godward. It takes maturity, though, right? To, to say, I'm not going to live for the immediate reward. I'm going to live for the eternal reward. But to live for the eternal reward says, I'm going to give up some of the immediate reward. Years ago, our, one of our youth pastors brought his two kids over fishing uh, to our place, just a little canal off of Jolington Creek, and they came over, and it was just a little Zebco Raj, just little kids, so little pieces of bread, and, and one of them fished, and the other one ate all his bread. <laughs> he literally, he was like, no, I'm not going to eat this. And until his bigger brother called a fish. And then he was like, you know, it wasn't a reasonable, rational conversation with a three. I was you ate your bread. That's easy for us to look at some little kids and go, come on, dummy. It's harder to look at ourselves and go, come on, dummy. Why are you living for bread? instead of the fish, the greater eternal reward. So how do we, how do, we do that? I invite you to turn with me to a, a section in the New Testament, 1 Timothy chapter 6, because it speaks very specifically to how we can live for, and the legitimacy, in case you're still wrestling with that, of living for a greater eternal reward. To say, <laughs> I'm going to sacrifice to help the broken and burn. I'm going to give up what I could do here and now for helping those who are broken and burn. You follow what I'm saying? And I'm going to sacrifice. I'm not going to eat all the bread that I could just eat. Remember me, oh God, for the good that I've done. Timothy said, Paul says to uh, Timothy this, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. What we talked about earlier. Who made the rich and the poor? The Lord made them both. So don't be conceited. And don't fix your hope on the uncertainty of riches, because they can take wings. But on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. So he gives us that which he gives us in order to enjoy. But notice, next verse, how we enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. And I love this passage because it helps me see that 
if I have stuff, it's not because I was smarter or greater. It was because God gave it to me. And if I have stuff that God has given to me, he gave it to me to enjoy. And the greatest way to enjoy it is to use it as the opportunity for doing good and not just doing a little good, but to actually be rich in good works. You understand what that means, right? It's not just doing the baseline. It's just not doing enough to skate by. It's going, I'm going to be lavish, generous in my works. I'm not going to do just a little. I'm going to do as much as I possibly can for those who are broken, for those who are unreached for those who are lonely, for those who are poor. And I'm going to be generous. And I'm going to be ready to share. And one of the greatest, most simple principles of being ready to share means that I have not swallowed it all up on myself. The heart of generosity within many folks, never gets expressed because they weren't ready to share. It was already all committed to all the payments and the bills on us. I'm going to take that which God has given And what's it going to look like? It means I'm going to bless those who don't have. And there's times where I'm going to bless those who do have. It's hard to do both of those. But one of the things I really love about Nehemiah is he loved the poor and the rich both equally. Sometimes those who love the poor are very judgmental toward the rich. And sometimes those who love the rich ignore and try and skirt the poor. You see, we can put ourselves in one camp or another. The beauty of Nehemiah that really motivates me is to go, no, I'm going to live in a manner that loves the poor and I'm going to live in a manner that loves and blesses the rich. I'm going to be generous. I'm going to be rich in good works. Some of you have opportunity to be more rich in your good works because of whatever circumstances, season of life that God has put you in. You can be more rich in good works. Some of you, God has made you, given you opportunity to be more rich in giving generously. Don't look at what other people can do. Look at the opportunity that God has given you. And simply say, I, I want to, I want to have the maturity to not eat all the bread, but to st- 
store up the treasure of a good foundation for the future. So let's be clear. Can I do good and give in order to gain heaven? Okay. Uh, if, we're not, if we're not clear on this, we don't do good and give in order to gain heaven. Uh, that would be impossible. I could never be good enough. And even from this day forward, if I could be good enough, which I can't, but even if I could, then what about the first 58 years of my guilt? The only way we can even gain heaven is by trusting in what Christ has done for us, paying our penalty for our sin. I can only be saved. I can only enter heaven by believing in Jesus and what he has done for me. But those of us who have trusted in Jesus can live this life in a manner that will not earn us heaven, that's Jesus, but will gain great reward in heaven. A, a treasure for the future, a taking hold of that which is life indeed. You understand what he's saying? The greatest way to take hold of that which is life indeed is to recognize all that I have been given is going to be used according to three values, three principles. Love for God. Excuse me. <laughs> Love for people. Fear of God. And what? A greater eternal reward. To think beyond today. To think beyond this year. To think beyond uh, retirement to literally think beyond this life and go, I can live this life in a manner that impacts my next life? Yes. And in fact, that is the way to live this life. To say, I will give up what I could never keep to gain what I will never lose. That's the privilege of knowing how to live life. So just, just ask yourself this. What would it look like for a life lived on the foundation? For, don't, don't think anybody else. This was so good for me. Just to go, what would it look like for me to live life Every decision through this grid, love for people, fear of God, eternal reward. Love for people, fear of God, eternal reward. How I use what? My wealth, my authority, whatever God's given me. How I use it based on what would love people? What would reflect a fear of God? <laughs> and what would last?
for all eternity. Would you bow with me? I want to invite you to just take a quiet moment. And first, first and foremost, I want to invite you, if you've thought trusting in your good works would get you to heaven, I want to invite you to, to agree with me that the only way your sin can be forgiven is through trusting in Jesus. I want to invite you this morning to, wherever you are in the quietness of your seat, to declare, Lord, I, I admit my guilt. I admit that I cannot save myself. I believe that Jesus alone can save me. And that you would receive the gift of his love, his forgiveness, and his grace. If you've done that, what would change in your life if the filter really became love for people, fear of God, and eternal reward? Listen for the the Spirit of God to speak to you. Lord, we don't want to grow uh, accustomed, blind to the rubble around us. We want to be reminded of those who are broken and burned that we might, in fear of you, love them, serve them, care for them, knowing that we'll give up Convenience, comfort, pleasure, wealth, opportunity, privilege. To help them, we'll give up those things, Lord, in lots of different ways. And it'll be worth it. It'll be worth the eternal reward that you will give because, Lord, you will remember. You'll remember the good we have done for the broken you've placed around us. So would we be the body of Christ who loves well, who serves well, who cares for the needy, who helps the broken? Thanks for that privilege, and thanks for the promise of eternal reward as we live our lives to your glory. In Christ's name, amen. If we can pray with you uh, early in any way uh, this morning, there's always out my left, your right, or over in north straight out the back, there's men and women available for prayer. Thanks for being here. Would you go and be the body of Christ, blessing those that God has placed in your life.